I am Kale Maestri. Welcome to the latest episode of Engineering Reimagined. Developments in science and technology are taking place at an unprecedented rate, and the expansion of our society beyond this planet is within reach. NASA plans to send humans to Mars by the 2030s. How will engineers contribute to the pursuit of space discovery? Dr. Adriana Marais is one of Africa's foremost digital disruptors, physicists and space travel enthusiasts. She talks to us about why she wants to move to Mars, how to cultivate a culture of innovation, and why both children and adults should be excited about the future. Today's interview takes place between Dr. Adriana Marais and Dr. Gabby Wojtovitz. Dr. Marais is a physicist and innovator who believes that we are living at a unique point in the history of life on Earth. As an aspiring extraterrestrial, she's raised her hand to go and live on Mars. She's also the head of innovation at SAP Africa, has a background in physics, and holds an MSc in quantum cryptography and a PhD in quantum biology. She's authored numerous academic and public articles and has received a range of awards. Interviewing Adriana is Dr. Gabby Wojtovitz, Associate and Geotechnical Engineer at Oricon. In Gabby's nearly 14 years in the industry, she's played a role in the foundation and ground engineering on many complex projects. Some of her career highlights include being part of the Deep Foundation's geotechnical team that is supporting world-renowned architect and engineer Santiago Calatrava. Let's listen in as they chat about space travel human settlement on other planets, and even the possibility of mining the asteroid belt beyond Mars. Adriana, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Gabby. Pleasure to be here with you. I'm absolutely fascinated to be meeting you and chatting with you today. My work in the geotechnical field is very much Earth-based and Earth-based materials. And as a civil engineer, we create infrastructure for man, I've never actually thought of creating infrastructure for man on another planet. And I'm fascinated that you are going to be moving to Mars and wanting to live there. But first, I want to ask you a few questions about your experience, your career, and your aspirations. Why did you become a theoretical physicist? Well, for some reason or other, since I was about four, I imagined leaving the planet. So I've always... uh, imagined and envisioned that uh, my life would not be spent on one planet. So options are are limited in that sense. You can become an astronaut if you're a US citizen or a European citizen or a Chinese citizen. So as a South African, um, aeronautical engineering is not actually offered in South Africa. So I chose to study physics and then got really uh, fascinated by quantum physics, which may seem like it was off the track of space. But actually, my interest in physics um, and quantum physics led me back to the field of, of space somehow through quantum biology. So eventually applying the physics of very small things to living systems, we try to understand on a molecular level how photosynthesis works. Then you naturally come up with a question like, what is the simplest living system? What are the minimal requirements for life? What is that? What would that look like? 
And then you realize that Earth is just a single data point. Um, the simplest living systems that we have on Earth are not necessarily the general simplest living systems. And so basically to understand life from a physicist's perspective, you need another data point, which means you need to leave Earth. So then I became interested in astrobiology and a field which uh, may or may not exist by now. Um, I think I might have coined the phrase at some point of quantum astrobiology, which looks at the molecular precursors of life um, in space, many of which have been detected. Then during my PhD, while I was looking into these questions, the Mars One project was announced. And luckily, I happened to read that article because many um, fellow aspiring extraterrestrials didn't happen to read that article. So around 200,000 people applied. Anyway, over the years, um, they narrowed us down to 100 um, astronaut candidate finalists. And that's where we are right at the moment in the like semi-final round, basically, with 100 finalists from all over the world. Since childhood, you have dreamed of living on another planet. What is the appeal? I don't know. I just guess I just got born with a bigger view of my place in the universe. <laughs> no, I've never seen myself as being limited to this planet, and there's a lot of um, odd things that we do on this planet. And my real hope is that we can kind of upgrade the way we think here on Earth, and space exploration seems to be an extreme but effective way of really forcing people to think differently by achieving really uh, improbable things. <laughs> Does anything about it scare you? No, I mean, what scares me is the kind of blindfolded way in which people on Earth live. Mm -hmm. um, our population is exponentially increasing in, in a lot of areas at least. Um, guess what? Our resources are constant. We're living on the same rock that we've always been living on and we carry on consuming at the same rate. This is scary. <laughs> this is crazy. Wanting to go and establish a extremely resource-constrained uh, settlement on another planet, this is great. This is the future. Um, demonstrating how we can live in resource-scarce environments. Um, I hope we don't find ourselves in a situation on Earth where we are forced to, to deal with such a situation. I hope rather that we can gradually just change the way we behave. But um, unfortunately, we don't seem to be acting quick enough. And perhaps uh, demonstrating a community on the surface of Mars is the wake-up call that people on Earth need as to what's possible using solar power, highly efficient water management systems, and even air production from scratch. You know, how do we engineer systems that can be manufactured from local resources without negatively impacting the environment? Once we have these resources, how can we like keep them within the system? Um, and all the equipment and construction implications that come with that, um, also based on what we're going to be able to access on Mars. So whatever we extract will be have been painfully extracted with a lot of power resources used for that. So it would not make sense to not recycle, you know, even the sweat that comes off your forehead would in principle get sucked into the ventilator and purified, you know, the salts we put on the table <laughs> in the water. Now you can tell I'm not an engineer, but <laughs> in principle these things are possible. And when you're looking on a molecular level at resources and like living such a thin line between life and death, um, yeah, then you really realize how precious resources are and how much of a, an easy ride we have here on Earth. What do your family and friends think of you wanting to live on another planet? Totally supportive, think it's chameleon character. Um, yeah, would be proud to know me if this happens. So, of course, this hasn't happened yet, and I'm not an astronaut yet. I haven't been to space. Being one of the first humans to live on Mars, this is a, a huge dream. But I'm into big ideas. Um, I don't think I've got any time to waste in terms of investing in smaller, you know, not that there's such a thing as a small idea, but I'm like, I'm on this planet once. Let me try and leave it. <laughs> So, yeah, friends and family can understand that that's who I am. And, yeah, my dad's written a book based on me. 
My mother does numerous interviews saying, saying she would never stand in the way of a dream of a child of hers because a lot of other mothers ask her, how can you let your daughter go? And she's like, let? How could I prevent my child from, <laughs> from uh, living her dream? So, yeah, I'm lucky to have a supportive friend and family base. Clearly the unknown appeals to you. And I think that's part of our history as humans is, you know, some people love being out of their comfort zone. I'm one of them. Some people hate it, but we all get pushed out of our comfort zone for some other reason at some point. And I think looking back, we all have to admit we learn from those experiences. So whether you bring them on or whether you just find yourself in them periodically, these are the, you know, experiences by which we learn and grow. And as humans, we've always been explorers. There was always some person amongst the group who would, you know, put on a backpack or whatever they had and walked over that horizon to see what was in the next mountain range. The next surface that we can explore is that of Mars, Venus being hundreds of degrees, not that practical to explore the surface. Um, I think the real risk is to not to continue to explore. The risk is to find ourselves as a, you know, couch potato earthlings who stay on Earth the whole time. We breed, we populate the surface, we destroy the climate or at least the equilibrium that supported us. Um, and we go extinct because guess what? It's a swiftly changing environment. You know, organisms either adapt or die. And if we change the environment on an extremely fast scale, which seems like we have, we are contributing to now, uh, we might not have time to adapt. So basically our own technology will then be our own ending. <laughs> That's the negative sense. I don't believe that will happen. I believe that through the same technology that caused the problems, we can, you know, prevail. <laughs> but we have to think differently and we have to be prepared to face challenges and uh, get out of our comfort zone and think objectively about how we can solve them. The Mars One project has had financial problems. Do you still believe the project will get you to Mars? The Mars One project has never had any money. So for us in Mars One, nothing changes. Guess what? We don't have a billionaire funder, unlucky us. Um, so funding has always been a challenge um, and it continues to be. Um, the Mars One project has been hugely successful. Um, Sheldon Cooper has volunteered for Mars One on, on the Big Bang Theory. Lisa Simpson has volunteered for the Mars One project on The Simpsons. Um, Cartman's girlfriend's volunteered for the Mars One project on South Park. And uh, yeah, this is amusing, but also important because this has been the contribution. It's entered into conversations. Um, even when it's bad press, it's press about getting to Mars, which is what we didn't have before. Um, we've got the National Geographic series on Mars. We've got The Martian with Matt Damon. Um, we've got all of this kind of popular culture conversation happening around the project. Um, so in my mind, the Mars One project has already been a success. It's brought together 100 people who are dedicated and prepared to you know, give up their life on Earth to make this possible. And the opportunity to count myself amongst these other 99 um, has really been a privilege. Um, so there's absolutely nothing that's gone wrong with the Mars One project. Maybe they've bitten off more than they can chew, but that remains to be seen. <laughs> I mean, personally, I don't think any of the 99 others or myself have ever invested all of our hope with Mars One. It's a startup, you know, a startup having financial problems. It's not really uncommon. Personally, I've been endeavoring on all fronts um, to support the Mars One project and do parallel activities. The Foundation for Space Development South Africa is initiating a project for the winter of 2020, where we will take a dozen or so people to Antarctica for an overwinter expedition. It's an off-world settlement simulation experiment. 
So the conditions in Antarctica, especially during winter, most closely are most closely analogous with what it would be like to live off Earth. It's completely isolated. No ships can come and go. No helicopters can come and go. There's no visibility, no light for some days. So these conditions are yeah, close to the kind of cold you will experience on Mars, the kind of isolation. And for the hardware, testing of hardware, this provides a fantastic opportunity to test, you know, the lifetime of lithium batteries under these conditions. Can we support the diesel generators with some hydrogen fuel cells? Can we develop a wind-powered technology, um, power generation system? Uh, how will we grow food indoors? So this is very analogous to what we would do on Mars. Um, water is easily accessible in Antarctica. You just have to shovel it. So that will be part of our activities. On Mars, it's a bit more complicated, whereby there's only 2% of the sand is ice. Importantly, besides the technology and the research aspects of it, um, the community and the interaction between the people will really be crucial in terms of the success or failure of the projects that each person brings to the to the mission. So we'll be opening up applications to the public. We haven't announced it yet. We're still finalizing discussions with partners from government agencies to tech companies to aerospace companies. Um, we'll need a lot of advisors, just like any extreme environment experiment. Um, and so I think it's an interesting thought experiment, uh, whether or not you see yourself going to Mars, whether or not you actually see yourself going to Antarctica during winter. It's a very interesting thought experiment, like how am I contributing towards the critical infrastructure that's required for the survival of my species? How realistic would it be for us to one day be mining or carrying out exploration within the asteroid belt? When people hear about mining asteroids or colonizing planets, they might naturally get their back up about those things with respect to considerations about the impact of mining on Earth, on the environment, and colonization have an extremely bad uh, you know, historical legacy, um, which we are currently living in in South Africa. So I would never use the word colonization um, for, for Mars. It's a settlement. We're not going to be copy-pasting the legal framework of any particular country, and that's the beauty of Mars One. So I like the idea of a private company doing it even better, a collaboration of many private companies, which looks to be how it will turn out. Um, the mining of asteroids, for me, is far more ethical than the mining of Earth or the mining of moons. These are bodies um, that are protected by the Planetary Protection Treaty, especially on Earth. It's the life, really, the eco, the you know biosphere that we're protecting by thinking of mining in a, in a negative light. Yes, we need the resources. Asteroid mining really provides the answer to this. Um, we don't really want to be, you know, exterminating many systems and the delicate like ecosystems on the surface of Earth. So I think for asteroids, I see no ethical objection to extracting resources from pieces of rocks. Um, first of all, we would look for evidence of life in these rocks, which would be the most important discovery, I think, besides finding platinum or something, would be to find, you know, evidence of some living system that we hadn't seen before. Um, but once this is done... The resources on asteroids ranges from water to minerals to platinum, metals, you name it, whatever element you're looking for, there's probably an asteroid with your name on it. Finding an asteroid that's in vacuum and just, you know, encapsulating it and ex extracting the resources that you need through some advanced system, which we're only really in the process of imagining now, this is great. I think we've landed on a comet. Um, the Rosetta asteroid was investigated and now the Hayabusa 2 will be landing and extracting material which it will bring back to Earth. So a sample return mission from an asteroid um, and this is going to be hugely important for both understanding what kind of resources we might find there, understanding whether there's evidence of life or organics there. What should engineers like myself be doing to help support humans and infrastructure on other planets? 
Yeah, it's difficult to say because there's so much to do. Um, so I try not to uh, imagine what other people's roles might be because that really just restricts it, I think. But basically, I think as engineers, you know, space is probably some of the most inspiring uh things, you know, challenging thing to think about because the environments are so difficult. The systems that may work on Earth, you know, maybe we've been doing it for years on Earth, but now I think about doing that in a vacuum or in very low mm -hmm. temperatures. Um, and I think for people who enjoy challenges such as engineers, this is really an ideal um, scenario in which to think about things, even if you're not building them. The SKA telescope is constructed to look at the cosmic dawn and the birth of the first stars. How important is this research? So the story I always tell in this context is the previous largest science experiment on planet Earth was the Particle Collider CERN in Europe. And the amount of data that they envisaged being able to generate by smashing these subatomic particles into each other was beyond anyone's capability. So basically, locally analyzing the data would not have been possible with the current hardware. So they actually envisaged the internet. Um, the first imaginings or proposals for such a thing as the internet came out of the research teams at CERN. They said, we have to distribute this data, we have to analyze it remotely, and we need this network capability, basically. So as a result, obviously, the commercialization of the internet happened next with the input of many. SKA will be the world's largest science collaboration um, like CERN was the previous one and the data generated at the SKA would be more than 10 times the data generated by CERN so this is basically like on the scale of 150 terabytes per second so once again we hit this huge kind of bottleneck where this amount of data is not going to be able to be analyzed locally and I'm not going to say we're going to reinvent the internet but rather we can't even imagine what kind of data processing distribution or more capabilities emerge so this is not only a theoretical scientific um, opportunity for South Africa but a real practical one in terms of developing data structures from the skills required all the way through to the hardware um, yeah we're really lucky and excited to see what kind of things come out of this on all levels, from the educational side uh, all the way through to hardware that may be invented during the process. Do you think the SKA will drive innovation and uplift science and STEM in South Africa? I think this is true for the SKA, whether it's the schools that are being built in the Northern Cape to the university scholarships that are being provided in terms of supporting research, fantastic in terms of like stirring the imaginations of a whole generation. Yeah, we have a lot of hope in the, in the power of this project on all, all levels. Can technology and digital transformation improve the lives for all Africans? I don't know. The statistics that we get are already a, a post-selection because uh, there are 1.1 billion people in the world who don't have any official means of identifying themselves. So first of all, this category of people then presumably is not forming part of any of the statistical analysis. And we hear a lot of people normally, you know, wealthy white men saying that on average, the human existence is improving. Fine. Maybe in their data sets, that's being revealed through, you know, I don't know, vaccinations, better nutrition, better access to healthcare, whatever. So I think our African population is is pretty resilient as a result of not having had access to resources in the way that people living in, you know, Europe or the US have. So by nature, we've got used to being creative in terms of resolving issues around power, water, food. Um, 
so we have that opportunity that we already have that kind of way of thinking of a sort of scarcity. So I think access to data is something we need to work on, but more importantly, nutritious food, clean water, clean air, back to basics. Um, and I think, you know, urban, massively, you know, high rates of urbanization in Africa are something we have to think about. How are we going to feed these people? How are we going to upgrade our city infrastructure? Um, and probably it's not going to be a copy-paste from how, you know, Prague developed over the last 600 years. No, it's going to be completely different. Like, So... Um, that's really then in the hands. I think at the end of the day, legislation is an important part of development in any country, so we really need government on board. When astronomers can understand the formation and evolution of the first stars, what will they do with this information that can help us today? How stars form and how the galaxy formed, um, this contributes to our understanding of our place in the universe. For me as a researcher, that's you know fundamental. If we don't have curiosity about our place in the universe, um, then we have really not come that far. Um, but the practical um, applications of an experiment like the SKA, I think I've explained, which is like, it has impact on society at large through the kind of capabilities that have to be developed to do this very fundamental science. And that has impact on all sorts of areas from developing skills and in, in technicians and engineers and, you know, management managers of these operational aspects of these things, um, data distribution centers, data warehouses, um, all of this infrastructure. So the impact of, of doing cutting-edge science is really far greater than the scientific outcome itself. Your mission is to inspire children and adults about the future. Give us your sales pitch. Why should we be excited about the future? Our time on this earth is limited. That's, that's a fact. You know, Some people ask if I'm afraid of dying on Mars, and I think a far more tedious outcome would be to die on Earth because guess what? We all die at some point. The point is not worrying about death, but how we fill our time while we're alive. And for me, after having thought about it, I think our unique contribution to reality as humans is our capability to create knowledge. So as a human, then, I want to maximize or optimize my knowledge creation and to be in a new environment, but to be on a new planet. Just the scale of knowledge creation is just like exponentially more than anything you could do on Earth, no matter how much funding you got and no matter how big your research group was. Just living in that environment will mean, you know, every breath you take, um, every piece of food you eat is part of a research study, basically. Every living moment is part of some other novel research program. So, so for me, that's that's really the motivation. And what more exciting period in history has there ever been than this one? I think no other. Adriana, thank you for sharing your inspirational story and thought-provoking views with us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, thanks, Gabby. I think we all have a role to play. So let's respect life and make the most of our time, whatever planet we're on. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please leave us a review to let us know your feedback on our podcast series. We've spoken to some phenomenal guests so far, ranging from a French chef to an innovator who is repurposing waste. Catch up on any podcasts you may have missed by checking out the podcast list. Spread the word, tell your friends about Engineering Reimagined, which they can find on their favorite podcast platform. <laughs>